Hello and welcome to Crypto Nomads, the podcast where we discuss the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain tech, and importantly, its implications for the world. I'm Eli. I'm Max. And we're coming at you uh, from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And Mexico City, as per usual. All right. (laughs) Moving up to our Crypto Nomads monikers. How are you doing, Max? I'm doing well, man. Um, it's been a, it's been a, a nice week here in Mexico. It's finally getting pretty warm here, um, and I'm extremely excited to talk about uh, privacy coins. What's going on with you? Yeah, I've been uh, doing a little farming actually. I'm staying in a town called Courtney, and we've been uh, I'm actually woofing, so I'm doing some organic farming, lots of weeding, collecting chicken eggs uh, by day, and then researching Monero by night. <laughs> Sounds like the dream life. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been pretty sweet. Great. So let's dive right in. Uh, recently, we started our series on privacy. Max, it would be great if we could do a brief overview of kind of where we came out on that. Uh, just a quick note, one kind of privacy-related piece in the news. I don't know if you saw Did you see the Guardian piece this weekend about the Facebook data breach? No, but uh, I've been reading um, sort of a lot of guides on, on how to uh, shield your Facebook data from third-party APIs and that sort of thing. So I'm already terrified of Facebook, but well, what was this one? Well, uh, well, I, I really think we're going to have to have an episode where we debate, resolved, we should get ourselves and all of our family members off Facebook. Because uh, this was a case where apparently 50 million profiles of Americans in 2014 were obtained by Cambridge Analytica, which is the oh, yeah. data analysis firm that was pretty instrumental in supporting Trump and also the pro-Brexit campaign. Pretty brilliant data analysis. I think basically what they're able to do is create individual profiles of people in the U.S. and like target ads directly at them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of those guys. Pretty creepy stuff. I mean, Cambridge Analytica, I think it's owned by Robert Mercer, who's this extremely wealthy libertarian donor. So anyway, just another another reason to to get a move on in describing our our data hygiene. But I guess today we're going to focus on uh, spending anonymity and the ideal cryptocurrency that can enable you to truly spend and receive money without ever revealing what you're doing, who you are, who you're sending money to. That's right. Yeah, and and in our first episode on privacy, um, we asked the fundamental question, why is privacy important? Right. And some of the ideas we came up with, um, number one, is that at a philosophical level, privacy is important to give people the freedom to experiment with who they are, um, who they might be, what they believe. Um, If your sort of interactions with people, your purchases or the information you consume are either regulated or monitored, that's obviously going to impact the kind of person that you can become. And some of the practical examples we came up with that were a bit, I guess, concerning um, is, as you mentioned, corporations having access to your data to influence what you read, with whom you associate, what you buy, all with limited consent from you at best. Um, We talked about, obviously, the fact that government regimes change over time and when those corporations are willing and, and able, as we saw with you know the Snowden example, to give all of that data over. Um, that's pretty you know potentially scary. Even if you're not scared today, in a hundred years or fifty years, you know who knows where um, where our regimes might be. Um, and we also talked about how privacy is necessary for fungibility, and that right. kind of played into this idea we discussed of sound money, which is that if you want money that's um, not easily uh, able to be manipulated, it number one needs to be fungible such that every unit of your currency has the same value as another unit. Um, and privacy is necessary for that. We yeah. talked about how Bitcoin, because you can trace different pieces of the blockchain, is not actually fungible. Um, so I think that's a pretty big argument for private spending. Right, absolutely. And how cash, generally speaking, is fungible. Although, you know, again, in kind of the spirit of thinking almost in a science fiction level, you never know what people might be able to do in the future with isotopic analysis or little photographs that are taken unbeknownst of the the serial numbers on on dollar bills. But you know, it's actually entirely possible that even that could be tracked, and that the fungibility, the kind of identical nature of all the units of currency, could be cracked, so to speak, in the future. Um, and that's uh, something I want to come back to later in the episode, which is the the fact that nothing is perfect with privacy, with anonymity. You can never become a hundred percent anonymous or hundred percent private forever. There's always a chance that, you know, things will change. All you can do is is do your best. And I think the practical examples you laid out, discrimination from governments, corporations, uh, being taken advantage of in a number of ways, those are all reasons to do your best. Let's start this episode with the assumption that, you know, our listeners and we want to be able to spend and receive money anonymously and have true fungibility. That is, identical from unit to unit uh, in the currency that we're using. So with that assumption in mind, what's the best way to do that, right? And I think last week, uh, Max, you did a great job reviewing a bunch of different coins that all claim to offer that ability. Uh, But now we're going to hone in on Monero, which for reasons we'll describe, 
we believe is the best uh, the best way of doing that. Yeah, and, and one point I want to throw out there before we dive into Monero is um, privacy and fungibility are obviously important, but not the only things we're looking for. Um, so we discussed this idea of sound money, which not only includes fungibility and privacy, but also includes that the money supply cannot be manipulated. Um, and so we talked about in the past with fiat currency, you know, US dollars, euros, central banks can print that um, with whatever frequency they wish. Whereas with something like Bitcoin or Monero, which we're going to talk about today, uh, you also have a limited supply, which I think is very important. So right. private money is extremely important, but as we've seen with private money of the past, um, that was either centralized or, or you know had some backdoor where someone could print more of the money, it still is not the ideal sort of digital cash. Um, so the ideal digital cash is fungible and private. It's obviously digital um, and it has a fixed supply. So just to review, that's that's the three characteristics we think we found here in Monero. Hmm. Um, so with that, maybe we can just go ahead and dive in, and let's let's take a quick uh, sort of philosophical or, or high level view of why you know we think Monero is exciting. Um, so the first thing that's exciting about Monero, and remember, Monero is trying to be sound money or private digital cash. Um, I think Monero is exciting because of number one, its community, and number two, its technology. I am personally very interested in its community because, like Bitcoin, it started off as a completely open source project. Mm -hmm. um, it started off with an anonymous founder. And it, there was no pre-mine, there was no ICO, there was no way for someone in the early days to sort of hijack the project and just try and, you know, take a huge amount of uh, a get-rich-quick scheme or, or wealth graph. Right. And to this day, it's still it's still like that, right? Actually, worth noting, Max and I have no affiliation with Monero because Monero is not a company. <laughs> it's just a group of, of exactly. fellow enthusiasts that are posting papers and, and updating the software because they actually care about these topics, not because they necessarily are, are going to stand to gain enormously like somebody in an ICO might. Right. I mean, and obviously, I mean, some of these people can gain if they're holders of the currency. Yeah. It's in um, a sort of a more fair or level way than just, you know, trying to take 80% of the supply. And actually, it's funny, you know, when I first started reading this, I would read on the on the message boards. You mm -hmm. know, when, when you read a bunch of the ICOs, there are people t sort of touting their their very professional credentials. You know, oh, I came from this bank or that company <laughs> or whatever. And Monero, right. the le leaders of this, many of the leaders are, are anonymous, but you've got people that go by the name of, quote, Fluffy Pony, who's the uh, sort of lead um, maintainer <laughs> right. of the project. You've got a guy who calls himself Samsung Galaxy Player, who's a really cool sort of community organizer. Uh, but the point is, like, these guys are not trying to you know, pretend they're something they're not. They're, they're people like you and me who happen to really care about privacy and really care about um, creating you know, digital cash. So uh, I, I think that's pretty admirable in, in this day and age. Absolutely. Yeah, and a great example of that, Max. Uh, we'll talk later about this idea of ring CTs, basically a technology that was implemented to make it so that Monero transactions, not only do you not know who they're coming from or who they're going to, but you also don't even know the amounts. And when I first read that, I was like, what? How is that even possible? You're stripping away all of the information that a transaction could have. We'll get into the details of how technically that's possible later. But just the fact that that was a big overhaul that the team kind of out of the spirit of improving the currency, they instituted and they made mandatory. So all of a sudden, everyone that owned Monero now has this additional level of anonymity that they didn't have before. And that's like if the US government all of a sudden upgraded all of our dollar bills, they can't do that, right? It's kind of an amazing thing that like a currency you have can get better over time rather than staying the same and losing its value through inflation. It's pretty impressive. And that's a good example of how the community is quite strong, as you said, and they're continually upgrading and updating the software and the, and the currency itself. Yeah, and I think that you know the community is unique in that they're technologically capable. Like these people are really, really smart programmers but I think they're driven more by ideology than technology. Mm, um, right. And some projects we talked about, for example, Zcash is really fascinating. It's using um, ZK Snarks, a, a type, new type of zero-knowledge proof. But those guys, while committed to the ideology, they have developed a technology and they've developed this currency to test the technology. Meanwhile, a project like Monero is basically agnostic to technology. They're basically saying, hey, we'll add whatever technology, like literally like layers on a cake, that keep um, making this better, fungible, sound, private, whatever you want to call it, digital cash. Um, and I, I think that's that's pretty unique in the space to have people that are agnostic to technologies. Um, so another another huge point for them. That's interesting though, because you think you look at something like Grin, which is another coin that someone's come up with, and that's a group of people that have decided to go their own way. And and it's worth noting that the Monero team, whoever whoever uh, 
Nicholas von Saberhagen is, <laughs> whatever group of people is that person who wrote the white paper, which I should note is, you know, incredibly impressive in terms of the mathematical knowledge that's displayed. I mean, these people know their stuff. They are true cryptographers on some level because what they've done is like, you know, academically impressive, I think, to experts that are way more knowledgeable than, than you or I. But, you know, they did choose to, to not fork from Bitcoin, but actually create a new coin. And they, they, they openly explain in the paper, look, we're not trying to make a coin that's going to take over and replace all the other coins, there's room for more than one currency that can sort of serve different purposes. So it's kind of, it's an interesting question to kind of watch different development teams make that decision. You know, are they launching a new coin or are they joining up with the Monero team and trying to add their feature to the coin? As you point out, the community is open to new additions, I guess. So it's kind of like, why wouldn't you jump on the bandwagon if you have such a philosophically aligned group of people? Well, certainly, I mean, that that whole community has taken the crypto note, um, white paper and run with it. Um, it. I think it's actually interesting. I, I may have my facts slightly wrong here, but um, I believe whoever dropped the paper sort of dropped, um, they created the first implementation of this coin. It was based on, um, I guess, I think it was Bitcoin at that at that time, um, but they actually had a pre-mine involved. Uh, so whoever it was is clearly incredibly smart, but they were trying to take some uh, some some of the bacon home for themselves, so to speak. Oh, interesting. And so okay. they had guys like Fluffy Pony and other people in the community who were like, wait a second, this is a great idea, but like this is not the right, not the right seed to start a project with and so they right. forked it and then you know became bit monero and then eventually monero or, or maybe it was already bit monero from bitcoin and they made it monero but the, the very interesting uh, initial story um, yeah which, interesting which, like, history it adds to the fun of it so max you mentioned number one uh community number two technology in terms of what excites you yeah. about monero so I'm just going to give a really quick overview of the four technologies, and then Eli, you can sort of dive in and give a bit more of a technical explanation. But Monero, again, I like to think of it as like Monero is like a car that's like becoming a tank. Like they just keep adding layer and layer and layer of privacy on top of privacy as new technologies become available. So currently there are four different technologies that are used to keep Monero private. There is one technology, ring signatures, which is used to protect the privacy of the sender. So you don't know who sent the money. Yep. There's a second technology called stealth addresses, which is meant to protect the privacy of the receiver. So you don't know who's, who received the money. There's a third technology called ring CTs, which you mentioned, which is used to hide the amount of the transaction. So you don't know how much was sent. And there's a fourth technology, which is forthcoming as of what month are we in? March, 2018, um, called Covery, which is an implementation of the I2P router, which is a project similar to Tor, which is meant to protect IP addresses from people that are running Monero nodes and conducting transactions. Um, so, you know, you protect who sent it, who received it, how much they sent, and even IP addresses involved along the way. Wow. Um, which is just crazy how much you know, they're layering on top of each other. You, you want to maybe walk us through a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us how, uh, how that actually works. Sure. Yeah. I was just going to add reasons to be excited about Monero. Number one, the community. Number two, technology, which I think we can spend most of the rest of the episode talking about. And we'll explain why we're making that choice in a minute. And number three, for me, actually, is that it's fun because <laughs> I feel like one of the joys of playing with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies and all this stuff is kind of, you know, the excitement of being part of a field when it's just starting. And obviously, we're way later to the game than the brilliant folks that actually developed some of these early cryptocurrencies. But what's cool about Monero is, you know, it's still running on a graphical user interface, a GUI that's pretty rough. I mean, you can also use the command line tools version. But when you're using Monero, when you're sending and receiving it, when you first get your first Monero, it's a little scary. There's a little bit of like thrill because it's it's not as polished as Bitcoin and Ethereum where they're sitting on these fancy exchanges like Coinbase and, and Gemini, whereas Monero is kind of, it's a little bit out there and it gives it a more of a playful, more of a fun feeling to use. Yeah. You know, when people ask me like, hey, you know, why are you so excited about this? Um, to your point, I feel like we're getting the chance to live in sort of the next internet moment. And I feel like anyone that's involved in crypto or interested in crypto at this stage, um, I, I forgot where I saw this on Twitter, but, but someone made this point, it, it resonated with me, has at least a little bit of a sort of rebel in them, I guess you could say. Mm. And I think Monero certainly is not necessarily in a destructive way of you know wanting to, to rebel against you know, good things in society, but rather having an attitude of always questioning, always trying to equip individuals to you know develop their own lives and, and be powerful individual units. And I, I feel like just getting to witness that in sort of a front row seat is the ride and adventure of a lifetime. So I couldn't agree with you more, man. Yeah, well, okay, so I think we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about the math and the tech behind Monero, which I think might give a lot of people pause, but don't tune out because for me, this is where the magic comes in. This is where you learn about these things and, and you say, okay, great. I can understand the impetus behind wanting to have a private anonymous cryptocurrency. And I can I can understand that there's these four technologies that are kind of cloaking my, my anonymity. But 
you need to do your own homework because to our point earlier, you know, n nothing's perfect. And ultimately, you know, most forms of privacy and an anonymity can be cracked eventually, potentially. And, and I think as we've learned, as we're learning from the, you know, the Equifax hack or this recently revealed breach of Facebook profiles that was instrumental in electing Trump, uh, there's just a lot of instances where as the world gets more complex, as our digital lives increasingly supplant our real world lives, to me, it feels like it's everyone's job to at least have some basic level of understanding of what are the technologies that help me maintain privacy and how do they work? And I think when we go into these, you're going to see that this stuff is absolutely fascinating. But I wanted to make one point that I think is actually really important. You just drew out of me and you made the point that people you know, have some responsibility to understand technologies to keep them private. I think it's even more important to take a step back and realize you know, technology is a process. It is never static. It is part of evolution. Technology evolves over time. And so when you talk about privacy or you talk about cryptography, secrecy, whatever you want to say, like, yes, the, all everything we're talking about here today will likely be broken in 20 or 30 years. But by that time, we will have developed even new methods um, that are that are not breakable by quantum exactly, computers yes. comes along. So, you know, never think, and I think this is the most important mindset for living in the 21st century when things are changing so rapidly. Nothing is static. Things change daily. And, you know, part of our, I guess, responsibility, and I would even consider joy of being alive now, is the ability to learn something new constantly. And I think I think that's what living in the 21st century is going to be about. Um, it's a process, not, not anything static. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So with that, let's dive into some of the magic. Like, how does this actually work? So how does one person who has Monero send Monero to another person and maintain privacy. In other words, make themselves untraceable such that nobody looking at the public blockchain can determine that they were the sender. I mean, that's pretty wild. You think about the Bitcoin blockchain, every single transaction very clearly ties one public key to another public key. We don't necessarily know who owns those public keys, but we know with certainty that some person, the same person that, you know, maybe earlier in the day sent another payment from that address, sent a payment to another person. So a specific other person. So that's a fully traceable transaction. On a high level, the way they do it in Monero is with this concept of a ring signature. So basically when you send the money, you're just one of a ring of people, a group of people, any of whom could have been the sender. And so although you are signing that transaction to prove that you are the owner of the funds, the, the person who views the, the transaction on the blockchain, they can confirm that one of the members of the group owned that money, but they don't know which one. What I like about this is it's kind of like a decoy. Uh, the example I like to think about is the king who's under siege and he sends out 10 identical carriages, each of which might contain the crown jewels. And no one knows which carriage has the jewels, not even the drivers necessarily, but one of them certainly does and it's going to reach the intended recipient. One way to think about it is a ring signature is really just a form of a group signature. Imagine we're all members of the same club and we all have the power to sign a check. Any one of us can sign it on behalf of the group. Or a company that issues key cards, for example, and they want to be able to allow certain employees access to a secure room, but they don't want to be nosy and track the employee movements. So that would be another way that you know any one member of the group can sign on behalf of the whole group, prove that they're a member of the group. What's really cool about Monero is this isn't a group of people as much as it's a group of possible transactions. So there's all these outputs that have been on the blockchain. Maybe, you know, I sent you some Monero for pizza one week and then someone else sent Monero to buy an SUV. Any one of those transactions can be randomly selected when I'm making my transaction. <laughs> the default settings, it's important to note, require you to form a group of five. And so you're basically picking four decoys, which yeah. can be any transactions on the blockchain. And when I first heard this, I kind of thought, well, wait a minute, like, couldn't you deduce by looking at which ones have been used and which ones haven't? But no, because there's actually no way to know which of the outputs on the blockchain have been used, any of them. Like in Bitcoin, it can yeah. be simplified because it's like once an output gets passed to another user who then takes that output, makes it in an input in a new transaction and sends it on, we know we don't even have to really keep track of the earlier history of that Bitcoin if we don't want to because we know the current owner. But with Monero, it's like every single transaction that happens no one who's looking at the blockchain knows whether that transaction has been spent by a new person. And so every time you, you send money, your software is just picking any five. It could be any of those transactions that have ever happened. And the only thing that gets used up are, are these key images, which again are, are held separately from the transactions. But I think um, what's cool about that privacy setting is if you want to be super private, if you want to be instead of one of five possible decoys or carriages from the king, if you want to be one of 99, you can do that. 
You just have to, yeah, you, you pay extra transaction fees, I suppose. So that's kind of the high-level concept of ring signatures with Monero. Anything you wanted to add to that? And, and Eli, how, how with ring signatures um, do you prevent the double spin problem? Um, it's fascinating that you know there's you know someone in this group that sent it, but uh, how do you make sure, if you don't know who's sending the money, that they haven't sent the money before? Right. So that's, a, that's another concept that we'll probably dive into a little bit later. But unlike the Bitcoin blockchain, which pretty much just contains a list of transactions, right? It's this giant timestamped ledger. Uh, the Monero blockchain contains transactions, but it also contains a list of key images, which are these special fingerprints that are attached to every transaction. Maybe, Max, when you talk about the stealth addresses, we can kind of explain how those are generated. But every transaction, every... Yeah. Uh, because what's interesting about cryptocurrencies is it's a bit of a Ouroboros, like the snake eating its tail, because every output from a transaction <laughs> becomes an input in the next transaction. So when I spend my Bitcoin, I'm just taking outputs that somebody sent to me from a transaction, turning them into inputs in the next transaction, kind of passing them along. But every single one of those transactions in Monero has this unique fingerprint that's generated called a key image, and the blockchain keeps track of which of those key images have already been used. Is that is that a fair reading of it? Yeah, I mean, I would tell people just to sort of think about it this way, like, um, you know, if, if we're sending, you know, a transaction, let's say there's five different outputs, let's say three of mine and two of Eli's um, associated with our public addresses, no one knows which of those five outputs actually signed a signature. You just knew it was one of the five. In theory, they have an equal probability to do so. Um, but the, 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 the problem that I was describing, the double spin problem, is how do we make sure if we don't know who signed it that they haven't sent money again? And what Eli was saying with the key image is that that sort of unique fingerprint, you know, is associated with a group of five. But the reality is whichever output was used to make that signature can only create one key image. And so the blockchain actually stores all of these key images or fingerprints, you can think of them like, um, to make sure that in the future there, there's no way a double spin can happen because the, the, the output may be included in another ring, the output that actually signed the initial transaction, but it can't sign another future transaction. Um, and that's a challenge for the blockchain. It, it's beautiful in that it allows for this you know, ring signature to work. But it also creates a lot more data that needs to be stored because now you're storing, you know, a whole other set of uh, a whole other set of um, not keys, but a whole other set of data um, with the key images. Right, and I think one way they're able to save on data a bit is I I believe the blockchain only tracks which key images have been used up. If someone tries to double spend, if I try to send you the same Monero twice, all of the nodes yeah, that yeah. are running the blockchain are going to have a little flag. They're going to say, wait a minute. Someone has tried to use the same key image. Only one unique key image can unlock a specific output. But on the blockchain, the, the transactions, all the old outputs that have been sent, and all the key images are stored separately. That is, there's no way to know on the blockchain which one corresponds to which one. That's right. And I think you raise a really good point there, Eli. For anyone that's running a Monero wallet today, a full node at least, I believe even if you point to a remote node, but definitely if you run a full node, your... UTXOs, your transaction outputs, like any amount of Monero that you hold, are being used constantly right. in transactions. Like you're probably using them, you know, I don't know, 20 times a day or maybe more, I don't know. And so to that point, even if you never actually use your, your outputs, they're being used as decoys in other people's transactions. Um, so because they're being used so frequently, that's um, that's how Monero in theory, you know, that's so wild. This, this, uh, this privacy. Yeah, I think, it, you know, after some amount of time, I think it begins to quickly look as if Everyone has been has been sending money to everyone. Exactly. <laughs> like it, it's such a it's such a mess of transactions that yeah, as you say, even if I've never sent Monero to anyone, it looks like I'm party to many 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 transactions. Or not even it looks like I'm party. It just looks like certain outputs are party to many transactions. No one even knows those outputs belong to me. So there's like there's a couple levels removed exactly of privacy going on here. One thing I wanted to mention to our point about uh, like anonymity never being perfect. Uh, there is something to think about with the with with that process of using random random outputs because imagine it's like 2040 and the Monero blockchain is super long it's been running for ages and ages now any transaction that pops up in 2040 is going to be part of a set of decoys but those decoys are more likely to have, to be selected from the earlier days because there's just so many outputs from the beginning so newer transactions are less likely to be used as decoys. That poses a problem because that because you want your output to kind of be mixed in with transactions that were sent around the same time, ideally, right? That's actually an interesting point. I haven't thought a lot about that. I mean, in theory, maybe it's it's less private, but still, well, there's certainly no way to prove, you know, even in that case, um, that any any output has ever been used. Uh, and 
maybe it's just a probability waiting thing. That, that would actually be yeah. a question for us to talk through with some of the, the Monero devs. I read about it just super briefly, and, and more or less the idea is like, you know, a lot of the older outputs are going to start to have been used a ton of times. In reality, that output was already spent three years ago, but the blockchain doesn't know that. The blockchain just keeps using it and using it and using it. But we do know when it first showed up on the blockchain. Yeah. And, and I think the team is already working on that. I think the team kind of recognizes that. And uh, I read something that suggested that they were kind of implementing some probabilistic distribution so that it's like the decoys are, are picked not totally randomly, but maybe weighted towards newer ones or something like that. So the point is there's always going to have to be improvements. And actually to that point, um, my understanding is that there is, you know, maybe a year or so ago, a paper published claiming that the way that Monero selected the algorithms was not fully random. There is, you know, a higher probability that, you know, certain transactions um, were chosen mm. over other transactions. And part of the problem that day, in those days, were before ring CTs were implemented, which we'll talk about in a moment, but that's what, you know, blocks transaction size. To include transaction amounts in a ring, they had to be at the, the same amount. And so that, you know, like if you, if you broke up your outputs into, you know, 0.5, 10, 2, whatever, that certainly limited the size of the space of possible outputs you could use in rings. Um, again, I'm not an expert oh, on this point, but my understanding is that since they've implemented ring CTs, it has increased the anonymity set greatly. Got it. I think one other thing I wanted to add before we move on from ring, ring sigs, when I first heard the idea of ring signature, I think I got confused with how Tor routing works, like this idea of onion routing. Like I was thinking of the rings as like concentric rings in an onion, whereas what it actually means is like an unbroken ring of individuals kind of sitting around a table, none of whom it has any sort of primacy. Like there's no one in the center of the circle. It's a ring, not a circle. They're all equal members on the outside. The actual person that's spending the money what their software is doing is it's mixing up the, the transaction data with their own public key and the four public keys, not, not even their own public key that ties to their private key, but ra rather the one-time public key of that transaction, plus four other random public keys and the key image. So there's data, five one-time public keys, and a key image. All that stuff gets mixed up, run through some hashes and some pretty complex math, and it, it pops out with this fingerprint, this totally unique signature. So the recipient, or, or rather every single person on the Monero network, they're able to see those five one-time public keys, and they're able to see the message, which is the transaction, that somebody can mathematically, very quickly, prove that one of those five public keys was in fact the real one. We've gone over how you can conceal the sender. You can make a transaction untraceable. But if all five of those public keys that were in the ring signature, right, the four decoys and the one real one, if they were all pointing to the same address, you would think that the, the recipient could be identified. So it, it feels like so far we've, we've covered the anonymity of the sender, but we haven't touched on the anonymity of the recipient. So that's where we should talk about technology number two, which is the stealth addresses. That's right. And before I dive into stealth addresses, I think it's helpful to understand um, something that's, I guess, pretty important about Monero is that unlike Bitcoin, which has one private key and one public key, Monero actually has a set of two public keys and two private keys. So in Monero, you have what's called your view key set, with you know private public view key and then your send key private public send key the private public view key is used to find quantities of monero that are associated with your address and the send keys are used to actually transfer ownership to someone else um, this is important because the stealth address concept uses both of these uh, to, to create your stealth address so the key idea with stealth addresses is that unlike in bitcoin where if i know eli's address and i send you know um, half a bitcoin to eli right now Please do. Yeah, please do. I'll, I'll send you five if you wish. Everyone can see, hey, address A sent X quantity to address B. If they already know my address or Eli's address or they have you know, advanced technology, they can quickly deduce who's sending money to who. In Monero, there is never money that is sent to your public address. Your public address, it's a bit more complicated than this, but your, your public address is essentially comprised of your public view key and your public send key, right? So you have two different keys. And the wallet, your wallet of your, the sender, so let's say I'm sending half a Monero to, to Eli now, my wallet will take his public address, which is public send key, and then we'll take those two pieces of data to create, uh, using elliptic curve cryptography, a separate one-time stealth address. And you can think of this stealth address as like a um, 
safety deposit box or a, a locked deposit box right. where no one on the network has ever seen money sent to that address before and they'll never see money sent to that address again. It's literally one-time use. And, and what's cool about this is that you know if Eli is on the receiving end of this, so he has two private keys. He has a private view key and that private view key can be used to search the entire Monero blockchain. In fact, if you've ever created a Monero GUI wallet, it takes like 48 hours to download or more all of the blockchain, and it will constantly say searching blockchain. Um, and what it's doing, part of the reason it takes you know even longer than Bitcoin, is partially because you have this you know private view key that's searching the entire blockchain saying, hey, are there any safety deposit right, boxes out right. there that belong to me? And what's cool about having that private view key is you can actually send that to someone else for auditing. Because that view key, just because you know, hey, I'm Eli, and Max just sent me this you know quantity of Monero, my view key allows me to know that it exists. But unless I have the private SIM key, I can't unlock it. So let's say I you know, wanted to do a, an audit, for example, with the government or you know, whoever, I can give a view key to show whatever money that my uh, addresses associated with my public address have received, but they can't necessarily uh, control it. So I think that's a really, really important point to grasp. Yeah, that's super important because Max and I keep talking up how great anonymity and privacy is in the context, context of financial transactions, but there's sort of a dark side. There's a bad element, which is it can be hard to prove that you did what you, what you said you were going to do. You know, if I'm buying uh, like a sweet motorcycle exactly. off eBay or not, not eBay, but let's say on Craigslist or, or just on the street, like really casually. <laughs> and I say that I sent my Monero. Well, the person could receive the Monero and, <laughs> and they could just claim that they didn't. I mean, I've actually had this problem in my own uh, nerdy private life, uh, buying and selling magic the gathering cards on the internet <laughs> sometimes you you know you send someone something and they, they pretend oh you know what <laughs> usps sucks they lost my package they lost your package rather it never came but you can use that view key to kind of retroactively say no 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 i did send this much monero to this person y you can choose what information you want to reveal without revealing any other transactions you've made but you can reveal that specific transaction if you want to one clarification to make there um i think that in, in the case you're talking about, that, that's coming from the sender side. My understanding, I could be wrong here, but my understanding is the view key will show you only which, um, as, as a recipient, which uh, quantities of Monero you've received. In the case of wanting to prove that you sent money to someone, let's oh, say like right. as a merchant, right? like you're, you're buying a motorcycle for me, which you know I would never have a motorcycle. But then that's actually something else called a payment ID. Um, and a payment ID is basically a random string of numbers that you can append to in a transaction. Like I guess it's through the signature, and you can basically use that later to prove. Like you can say, "Hey, I've attached this random number that I generated to a transaction." You don't know who the transaction is coming from, but you can search uh, the blockchain for this specific payment right. ID to verify that it came from me. Um, and I think that's actually used extremely commonly in online merchants with online merchants or even exchanges. But the the view key can then be used. To prove, hey, as a recipient, I, you know, I received this money. Um, that's my understanding. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I just wanted to expand a little bit on the stealth address concept. You basically have two private keys. Let's call them A and B, like a pair of keys. Each of those keys can, in turn, generate a public key. Like you were saying, you have four keys, but it's simpler to think of it as you have two private keys, each of which can generate a public key. When Max is sending me Monero, he doesn't send to my single address. He sends to this one-time address, and the way he does that is he takes my public address and he takes a random number, a random chunk of data, and he hashes those things together uh, using a hash function that everyone's aware of. So the algorithm he used is public, but what results is this totally crazy number that no one knows what it means. It used my public key to be generated, but it also contains this random salt, this random element. Over on my side, I'm using my private keys to kind of run the same calculation and see if when I keep running it, if my result ever matches one of the results of the many thousands of transactions that are flying past. So people are, are sending Monero to each other, but every single transaction looks like gibberish. But every now and then, if one of the transactions was meant for me, I'm going to be able to see on my side that that transaction was intended for me by running the same calculation using my private keys. And no one's going to know that I did that. I'm going to be, hey, Eureka, I just got some Monero. But I'm not going to announce that to anybody. I'm just going to see that pop up in my, in my Monero wallet. And once I see that pop up, now I've received this data from someone. And, and, and that random number that they mixed in with my public address, that random piece of data, I can deduce what that random piece of data is, or, or rather what it's been transformed into using elliptic curve multiplication. What that is, is it's what's called a shared secret. So all of a sudden, 
without Max sending me a password, so to speak, he's been able to share information with me that only he and I know uh, without actually sharing what that information is. We've both been able to derive a shared secret on two sides. Now, in my Monero wallet, I can put that output that I received from Max into a little folio of the different outputs that I have. Nobody else knows that I have those unless my computer is compromised or I decide to share those, right? As people are sending me Monero, as my Monero balance is ticking up day after day, wouldn't that be nice? I, <laughs> I, I'm just writing down in my wallet. My wallet's automatically keeping track of, of all these outputs and it's deriving a key image for each one. So to me, that's, that's fascinating and it's, it's kind of magical how that could even happen. So I wanted to take a quick moment to mention to our listeners that you know, one thing that Max and I want to endeavor to do is get right down to the nitty gritty, even more so than what we're doing today, in a series that we're going to call Going Primitive, which is to say, looking at cryptographic primitives. These are the sort of fundamental building blocks, like a digital signature, let's say, or a ring signature. These are units of cryptographic math that are used to build all these systems. And I think it will be helpful to kind of maybe keep this conversation a little bit higher level, and then later on we can delve into those details. I may be alone in this. I hope I'm not. And I know Max is on the same page. When I learn about one of these technologies, I really want to understand fully how it works. I want to kind of go into the nuts and bolts and really understand what's actually happening. How is that transaction structured? I think that level of knowledge, it gives you a level of comfort and a level of sort of satisfaction in using something that that you ordinarily don't don't have when you're using a piece of technology. And it's a really, it's a really amazing thing. I'd like to invite our listeners to kind of take that journey with us and see if they if they want to take the plunge and, and actually try to to understand, okay, how is that shared secret actually developed? What's the math behind that? You're definitely not alone there. <laughs> Diving through the technology is, is definitely a lot of fun. So in closing there, I mean on stealth addresses, which you can also think of as a one-time public key or a one-time recipient address, the key idea to take away, again, all the math here is complex, but the key idea is that money is never sent to someone's public address that they, they share. Every transaction has a one-time use address that someone with a private view key of a particular wallet can find. The key idea is that unlike Bitcoin, money is never sent to a public place. It is every every single transaction is sent to a unique place. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's the important takeaway. Right. So rather than me sending letters to Max's home address, I'm sending my letters to a random lockbox that only he is able to identify that it received the letter. Exactly. So Max, we've covered two major pillars of the technology behind Monero. First, we talked about ring signatures, which ensure untraceability. That is, you cannot trace where one particular transaction came from with any certainty. You know that it came from one of the members of the ring, but you don't know which member. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two is this concept of stealth addresses or one-time addresses where every single transaction is sent to a new address. It's not the address of somebody's house. It's this sort of imaginary lockbox that only they can unlock. So that provides unlinkability, which is to say you can't determine that any two payments came from the same person or went to the same person. Every single transaction is as independent as possible. What else does someone need to know to understand the <laughs> incredible lengths and depths to which this team has gone to ensure anonymity? So I think that the next very important piece is um, hiding the transaction amounts or ring CTs. And, and this was a technology that was just implemented last fall. Um, so Eli, maybe you want to give us an overview of how we're able to hide uh, transaction amounts. Honestly, Max, I think we're going to have to defer this one. This is <laughs> this is beyond my pay grade. Um, I feel like you know, after many many readings of the CryptoNote 2.0 white paper, I finally have maybe let's say an 85% understanding. But I believe that the concept of ring CTs came from another white paper by this guy uh, Shen Noether. It, I'm not sure if that's a pseudonym or a real person, but it involves this idea of a commit which I, my, my very surface level understanding is that uh, you're able to prove, just like a digital signature proves that you are the owner of something, usually a private key, without revealing that private key, a commit in this context is a way to claim that you're sending up to a certain amount. You don't specify which amount you're sending, but uh, you're effectively committing to something. And there's this thing called a Peterson commit which I think might be kind of like a mass balance concept. Like, you know, if we know there's an equal amount of water behind a dam and in a lake downstream from the dam, and the water can be pumped up and down or something. If you know that the volume of one, you know the volume of the other. And I believe there's something similar to that going on with 
Monero and this other crypto grin that people are developing where the total amount of outstanding Monero is a known amount, right? Yeah. Everyone knows how much Bitcoin has been issued. Everyone knows how much Monero has been issued because it happens deterministically through mining rewards. And everyone also knows how much of the currency has been spent in these unspent transactions. Like they're called UTXOs in the concept of Bitcoin. And and everyone knows kind of which ones have been spent and which ones haven't. And so if you know those totals, I think you're able to kind of ensure that any given transaction doesn't break any of the rules. Because one thing you could do is you could send yourself a, a negative amount of Monero. There, there's ways that you could do fishy things to increase your balance and, and just like make money out of thin air. And, and the math that's behind the ring CTs ensures that you can't do that. Uh, it involves something called a Peterson commit or Peterson commitment. I'm not ready to explain it, but I'm really excited to dive in and understand how it works because it's just a fascinating concept to me. It's like, okay, we, we've hidden the sender, we've hidden the recipient, now we're hiding the amount. This is absolutely groundbreaking, Max. I mean, when I send money to you from a bank, like think about the old way of moving money from bank to bank. It just seems so primitive at this point. Here we've actually been able to take out that central figure entirely and in this decentralized system, we can actually do something as wild as get rid of the amount. To me, that is, it's just, yeah. it's incredibly beautiful. Hiding the amount is an incredibly big deal. I mean, all of this is a big deal, right? Um, all of these different technologies coming together. So my understanding is that Ring CTs actually originated the concept behind this with Gregory Maxwell, who is a one of the core developers for Bitcoin. And what's cool about that, what I like about this story is that even though Greg is not trying to, I guess, you know, is not using his day-to-day -day time to develop for Monero, he put this concept out there and said, hey guys, here's a way, and I'm sure there were other people, I think a block stream involved with this, um, but he said, hey, here's a way that we can hide transaction amounts. And Bitcoin obviously is a much larger network. There's a lot more money riding on Bitcoin. So it's a lot harder for them to test new concepts. But because Monero is still a new project, which is, I believe, part of the reason they don't want to actually have a huge market cap yet. They want to be able to be lean and experiment. They actually said, wait a second, this idea from Greg is, is game changing. Let's see if we can implement it. And they did. So my understanding with the way that Ring CTs um, works is you have, you have two parts. You have the Peterson commitment, which is what Eli was explaining. And the Peterson commitment basically says, hey, I'm committing to sending a quantity of money. You don't know what that quantity of money is as a miner, but I'm releasing enough you know, data. Um, again, this is using elliptic curve cryptography, but I'm releasing enough data um, that you, along as a miner, have the resources you need to verify, hey, did Max send what he said he was going to send? I have no idea what he sent, but did he send what he said he was going to send? The second part of that is called a range proof. And as Eli was hinting to, there are sort of nefarious ways that one could send negative input amounts, which would allow you to game the system and basically keep more money for yourself while it looks like you're sending uh, money to someone else. And range proofs basically just check to make sure that all inputs you know, have a value greater than zero. Now, what's cool about this is that to date, those range proofs, I don't understand cryptographically why, but are extremely data intensive. So the range proofs are, are actually the biggest chunk of the Monero blockchain right now. And so there's another concept that Maxwell and a few other folks came out with recently called bulletproofs. I don't fully understand bulletproofs, but bulletproofs in theory allow you to conduct a range proof, make sure that all the uh, inputs into a transaction are non-zero, non not negative, but they can do it with about 80% less data to prove this point. And that means that the Monero blockchain can become 70, 80% lighter. Um, meaning it's you know cheaper and easier for people That's to great. store full nodes, keeping it decentralized. And bulletproofs were initially planned for this upcoming fork. I guess this uh, spring, I believe they've been pushed back into the fall fork. Monero forks every six months or so. But that when it hits is going to be an absolute game Monero changer. forks every six months. Yeah, yeah. So more or less, um, I don't know how long this is going to go on. But again, to our point on why the Monero community is you know so incredible. They have these pre-scheduled forks, um, I believe, you know, once in the fall, once in the spring, where they basically say, we're going to upgrade our money. <laughs> As Eli said, that's, that's something we're not used to hearing, but they say we're going to upgrade our, uh, our money based on whatever latest technologies um, we've implemented. And I think that's cool because, one, it gives people kind of a deadline, right? It's like a forcing function to test and release and ship new product. And two, it sort of kills the idea that, oh, we have to, every time we hard fork, it's this big, contentious, politically driven battle like we've seen with Bitcoin. Yeah. And it's just kind of an expected norm. Like, hey, we're going to keep upgrading. How long they'll be able to keep doing this as the community grows, the value grows, who knows? But I really believe that's why they don't want to become you know, a huge value coin for a while, purely so they can have space and freedom, as we've talked about, to tinker and experiment. That's really cool, Max. Um, I, I just, for our listeners, you know, I think most people are probably pretty familiar with the idea of forking, but I just wanted to kind of cover that 
super quickly. Ordinarily with these proof of work blockchains where there's all these distributed nodes, there's, there's no central figure telling you which set of information to believe, right? So you've got to come to a consensus on a broad basis. And the way they do that is that all the nodes are constantly searching for the longest chain, the longest series of blocks all of which have been verified, vetted, and allowed onto the blockchain after the pricing function has been solved, the proof of work function has been solved. But ordinarily, if a fork occurs, you know, if there's two blocks that both say they're a descendant, they're a child of the most recent block, that usually gets resolved pretty quick because all of a sudden one of the chains becomes one block longer and all the nodes basically say, look, we're going with a longer chain, more work has been put into it, that's what we've been programmed to do. Every now and then, of course, Bitcoin or another coin forks in such a way that two groups of people have different visions of what's going to happen to the currency. They introduce different software that does different things, that maybe it changes the block size or it does something, and, and, and basically no one can come to agreement. I think this is important to note because, Max, you're talking about these kind of scheduled updates from the, from the Monero team. And I think when someone who's new to the space hears that, they think, well, wait a minute, I thought this was decentralized. This sounds like a centralized group of people is telling me what my money is gonna be every six months, and they're forcing a software update on me. But that's really not what's happening. Each node has a choice. Which software do you wanna run? At the end of the day, this is just digital money. It's just the product of a set of programmed rules in a piece of open source software. And every single node can choose every minute of the day which software they wanna to use to run it. It's just that if you want your Monero to have any value, you've gotta kinda of go with the biggest group of people, the group of people that accept your money. I mean, your Monero is not going to have any money, any value if it can't perform a transaction properly according to the rules that people who accept Monero are following. So everyone's kind of voting for the best software. And to date, the development team behind Monero is putting out stuff that the, the miners, the people that run the Monero nodes, like, and they're happy to adopt every six months. And so that just keeps happening. And at some point, it could happen that people have a disagreement and they kind of fork into two different versions of Monero, I guess. And that probably will happen. To be clear, you know, when I say that these are scheduled, if someone and they were able to raise a large amount of support and start their own movement, they could easily say, you know, screw these guys, we're going to do our own thing and run their own version of the software. That would be a contentious hard fork. And, you know, that probably will happen if the community keeps getting bigger. Um, I think we're kind of in the, the sort of Garden of Eden age where it's still small and sort of secret enough that we could play with things without, without those kinds of consequences yet but it's coming. The innocent age, yeah. One other point, Max, that you raised that I really love. I mean, this is a great example of the fact that, you know, multiple currencies is a good thing. You know, Greg Maxwell could just as well have introduced that feature onto Bitcoin. But as you mentioned, it's going to inflate the blockchain. It's like, that's not what Bitcoin's going for. The idea is that the currencies can kind of diversify and they can build a set of features around a core principle. And it's super clear that Monero is where you go when you want anonymity and privacy. So they're just going to keep adding those features. And Bitcoin is where you go if you want the oldest chain that's had the most work put into it, right? The most money, the most kilowatt hours, the most energy has been wasted running mining rigs to ensure the validity and security of Bitcoin. So there's something real behind it, and it's, that's what makes it like a gold standard. I like that idea that currencies can diverge, and you can have different currencies for different things. I think one other really important point is that there there can definitely exist multiple currencies, like you're saying, there can be checking as accounts, savings accounts, whatever. But I also think that even if we do see a convergence, you're going to see different currencies testing different features. And so, for example, if Ring CTs and Bulletproofs end up being really successful with Monero, there's no reason to believe that in the future, Bitcoin, sure, it's more difficult, but they, they wouldn't adopt it as well. Um, so I think that's, that's also an important sort of idea to keep in mind is that coins can serve as testing grounds for other coins as well. Got it. Okay, so we've got Ring signatures to ensure sender privacy, stealth addresses to ensure recipient privacy, Ring CTs to hide amounts of transactions, what else could you possibly do to ensure the privacy of a cryptocurrency like Monero? Well, that, that, that's a great point. Because, like, like, yeah, when I first read all this, I was like, okay, like when I read those first three things, I'm like, these guys figured out everything. <laughs> and then I realized they added even more. But wait, so there's this more. how like anal and like serious these guys are about privacy, which is awesome. Exactly. You know, if you call in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to give you some Covery. And Covery is the, the newest project. This is actually not released yet. It's still under development. But Covery basically is meant to hide IP addresses. So if you're familiar, if any of our listeners are familiar with Tor, Tor uses something called onion routing and onion encryption. And basically what that means is that if I send, you know, I want to send a message to Eli, and we're both on this network. If I send a message to him that's encrypted, that message can be sent to many different people, let's say 20, 30, I don't know, you know, whatever, some large quantity of people along the way. And at every stop along that network, 
No one knows. All they know is who sent them the message and where the message is going. They don't know how many hops are in that network totally. They don't know if they're the first or the last or in the middle of the chain. And they certainly can't read the information because that information is encrypted. Yeah, it's like a game of telephone, except computers are playing, so they don't mess up the message. (laughs) I like that, actually. That's a good analogy. But Covery does something very similar. They actually use something called garlic encryption and garlic routing, which is basically the same as Tor, basically the same as Onion, except that a garlic clove has lots of little individual pieces of garlic inside, a group of garlic with lots of cloves. I'm not sure what the right analogy is there, but... I think you understand what I'm saying. And so garlic routing uses a similar idea where let's say I could have in one sort of message set, multiple messages, let's say, you know, five different messages. You know, the first message goes through a few hops. It ends up with Eli. Eli is able to decrypt the message that's intended for him and then send the other four messages to keep going through this network till each message reaches the person and needs to reach. It's very similar to Torts. You know, like I said, it comes from this project called I2P. But the key takeaway is that if you're running Covery, and my understanding is that Monero, the Monero community will likely make this part of the software by default, although there may be still some debate about that. But anyone that's running a node will basically have their IP address hidden constantly, which is huge. There's almost no leaked metadata that you know a powerful adversary can use to figure out who's sending, who's receiving, who's supporting the network, which is, you know... That's pretty remarkable. I, I can't even believe they, they came up with that. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that's what's come down the pike so far, but there's no reason why the team wouldn't keep adding features as they come up. It seems like today, if someone's sending or receiving Monero, there's virtually no way anybody could ever identify that they did receive Monero or or how much or, or to whom. So it's remarkable. So in addition to the privacy that we talked about, we're going to give you guys just a really high level overview of three other key differences that Monero shares with Bitcoin. Yeah, what, what the author of the CryptoNet white paper did is they said, while we're at it, <laughs> we're introducing anonymity and privacy, but while we're at it, why don't we improve a few other things about Bitcoin that we perceive as problems? So what, what, what are those, Max? Yeah, I think there, there's three big areas. One is the supply of the currency. So Bitcoin has a limited supply, 21 million, you know, unless the software undergoes a hard fork, that's all there's ever going to be. And that's interesting because it's like gold. It's deflationary. If there's only 21 million ever in existence, then the value of the currency will only go up over time as more and more people seek to acquire Bitcoin. Monero um, has something very similar. They use disinflationary but not deflationary economics. And what that means is that they have an almost but not quite fixed supply. So I forget the exact amount. I wrote this down. Maybe it's 18.4 or 16.4 million. Once it flatlines, it's like 0.6 Monero per block mine. Yeah. I I think it's 18.4 million is like the initial sort of outlay of of Monero. And then after that point, you have basically 0.6 Monero created as a mine reward forever. And so that means that in the first year, you have very small inflation of slightly less than 1%. But the idea is that that inflation amount goes down over time, but never reaches zero. Okay. And the idea is that that's actually going to help make sure the network maintains security because it makes sure there's an incentive for miners. That's a great point, Max. How do you get a bunch of people to run nodes? They're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. It's expensive. You've got to buy a bunch of equipment. You've got to store a big chunk of data called the blockchain. You've got to run these expensive mining rigs to validate these transactions. So, of course, people are only doing that because they're being paid. It's the block reward and they get fees. And what these game theorists or economists are trying to figure out is once the block reward goes away, are fees enough to keep miners mining? And there are some game theorists who believe that fees will ultimately drop to zero. That's a very contentious point. No one can prove. But Monero is basically trying to protect themselves against that possibility by by keeping some reward there. And the Bitcoin community is basically saying, by the year 2140, when the last Bitcoins are mined, we think at that point in time, transaction fees will, will be enough for someone to justify mining. And if that's true, great. Right. So the the second difference with Bitcoin is the dynamic block size. So anyone that followed the Bitcoin block size debate in the summer of 2017 knows how contentious this was. But Bitcoin in theory is capped at one megabyte, which is, you know, I don't know, several thousand transactions per block. And if you want to go back and reference that, we can throw in the show notes some some, uh, materials describing how a block is created. But the point is, it's a limited amount of transactions. And, And you can get around this, you know, Bitcoin implemented something called SegWit to allow for a few more transactions, but it's not a massive, massive increase. Um, They're obviously working on second layer network solutions like Lightning. The reason why this is scary is that Bitcoin can only do the equivalent of like 10 transactions a second, which isn't enough. Visa is processing thousands a second. 
Right. And honestly, I think the answer is that, you know, a second network solution like Lightning Network, which I'm sure we'll cover in a future episode, is probably the real answer. But Monero basically says, look, we're not going to be so dogmatic about what the block size is, how many megabytes you can fit. They don't want it to change rapidly, but they basically use an algorithm that takes an average of, I believe it's the last, I don't forget, thousand or last hundred blocks. And they basically say, if that um, average is going up over time, we're going to allow the block size to increase slightly over time. Um, and the way they do that is with, it's a bit complicated with, with fees or fines. Um, but the takeaway is Monero's blockchain can go, the size of the block can increase or decrease gradually over time, unlike Bitcoins, which is fixed. Yeah. And what's really what we're really talking about here is governance. We're really saying these cryptocurrencies, these developers who are building these technologies, they're fulfilling the role of like the U.S. Mint, Federal Reserve, and all the economic policy wonks all at once. They're designing a currency. They're actually changing it, which the U.S. government doesn't have to do. A dollar is a dollar forever. And they're making decisions about how many new dollars, so to speak, or in this case, Bitcoin and Monero, get printed. What are the rules surrounding them? And both Bitcoin and Monero have to struggle with those questions constantly because they've left open the possibility of change by nature of having an opt-in decentralized system. They've got to put in some play, some governance system to manage how those decisions get made. And I think Bitcoin evolved this pretty rigorous, contentious process with these BIPs, these uh, Bitcoin proposals. Yeah. Monero's doing the same thing. They've, de they've decided to leave more things open. Rather than locking a bunch of parameters the way Bitcoin did, they've decided, hey, let's leave some of these things adjustable and we're, we're going to let people decide on an ongoing basis. And so they've put more flexibility into their coin is really what's happening. Yeah, I agree with that. So th that, that brings us to your point, Eli, on governance to the last difference, which I actually think you, you probably can explain pretty well, which is ASIC-resistant mining. Uh, we've talked about ASICs in the past. Those are the specialized circuits that literally just like can do one function very well. People use them to mine Bitcoin. What's the difference here with Monero? Right. Well, the difference with Monero is they found a way to avoid that trend towards centralization. So what, what's really happening in, in the ASIC mining world is kind of like the universe trends towards entropy. The world of humans trends towards centrality. If you give enough time, money gets concentrated in fewer hands. Power gets accrued by a smaller group of individuals. That's like a constant force in human society that if you care about decentralization, if you care about finding a way to avoid those intense central concentrations of power and wealth, you've got to constantly be fighting against it. And we saw this happen with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is massively more decentralized than a bank is. But nevertheless, over time, people found ways because it was designed to be a democracy. It was designed to be one CPU, one vote. Every single person who's got a computer, can be mining Bitcoin, they can be participating in the network, and they've all got more or less an equal say. But what happened is, because of the real financial reward for successfully mining a block of Bitcoin, people said, wait a minute, I want to do this faster, I want to do this bigger. They started using GPUs, which are the graphical processing units. They started eventually making these ASICs, these specialized chips that just do the hashing for, for the Bitcoin hash function. All of a sudden, we've got these giant mines in China that potentially have way more power than individuals used to have. It's kind of going against the decentralized principles that Bitcoin was founded with. So Monero said, look, we don't want this to happen with our coin. We want to come up with a way that our pricing function, the algorithm that we're asking all the miners to use to, to reach a consensus, we want to make it resistant to somebody coming up with a specialized chip. You know, we want ordinary people like you and me to be maybe running a $1,000 device, not a $10 million facility. They used a memory-bound price function. So in, in the case of Bitcoin, you're basically performing a hash of a bunch of random numbers, hoping that your result from the hash has a certain number of zeros in the front of it. It's just a trial and error process. That calculation is what's called massively parallel. It's, it's easy to pipeline it across many separate CPUs. So you can kind of divvy up the work. Instead of having a supercomputer that has one really big chip, imagine a supercomputer that has lots and lots and lots of little chips, and the supercomputer is just really good at dividing up the tasks to the different processors and then coming back with the result. That's what people are doing with Bitcoin. Now you cannot do that if the math that you have to run, the calculation you have to run, requires accessing a chunk of memory. Now, accessing memory is kind of a time-bound thing. The algorithm has this random chunk of data in memory. The miners have to keep accessing random chunks of that memory. They can't predict which chunk they're gonna to have to access. Which chunk they access is determined by the previous one that was accessed. So it's kind of this pseudo-random search that they keep having to do and then they run this algorithm. I would note that even though Monero admirably thought all this through and, and made this pretty sweet 
algorithm that I think they adapted from something called Script, which other uh, cryptos like Zcash also use variations of. I think even Litecoin actually uses something like this as well. It is worth noting that although Monero kind of protected themselves from the development of a true ASIC, there has been a rapid development of like better Monero miners. I think people use GPUs, graphics cards basically. I looked online and it looked like the fastest hash rate one cost $1,500. So it's not cheap, but it's also not crazy. But it's not as if people can just use their laptops, right? You still have to make some investment because there has been a little bit of an arms race. So again, to my point about this gradual process towards centralization, it's just a natural tendency and you're just always going to have to kind of fight that trend towards concentration. But Monero's done a pretty good job. I think this memory bound pricing function is a step above the Bitcoin hashing function, which as we covered in a previous episode, has resulted in a huge energy drain on the world's energy system. Yeah. And, and I think it's also going back to what we said earlier, remembering that Monero and all of these technologies are works in progress. So there's actually some debate within the Monero community. They're considering changing the um, proof of work uh, system to use something, it's still a proof of work system, but called the cuckoo cycle, I believe, which is what uh, Grin, a coin we'll talk about more in the future, um, is going to use. And so that is sort of as as the arms race. I love these names. I can't get them. I know, right? Mimble Wimble, Cuckoo, Monero. It sounds like we're in the, the Cuckoo Cycle, the, the Mimble Wimble Protocol. Just remember the early days of the internet, Google and Yahoo probably sounded pretty ridiculous too, I guess. <laughs> um, but the point is, as the arms race builds and people invest more in the tech, more in the hardware, um, Monero can always fork and uh, make the, uh, the algorithm harder for really big investors to have an advantage. So I think that's pretty admirable they're trying to do that. Right. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating thing is that since the participants of a decentralized network are the voters, right? They're the ones that decide how the decentralized network gets run. Bitcoin has kind of forced itself into a hole because now the miners, they've reaped so much profits and they've become so powerful and they've invested so much money into their hardware they have a huge seat at the table and they're the ones that are voting massively on which Bitcoin forks to accept. And the only Bitcoin that's going to have any value is the one that people are mining. That's kind of scary. That's like a self-perpetuating thing where these people that are making money off mining and have invested all this stuff and want to maintain their power, they <laughs> are going to vote to keep themselves in that same position. So Monero is walking a fine line because as long as they have these small time miners, they're not going to have that problem. But as soon as somebody makes that big investment, as soon as somebody achieves that power, it's going to become harder for Monero to credibly fork onto another version of the software that changes the pricing function so that it's harder for the ASICs to be developed. Yeah. And I think we should do another episode in the future just on decentralization, why it matters and like how hard it is. To wrap this up today, so far we've spoken with you guys about why privacy and fungibility and sound money are important. Why Monero is, uh, you know, uh, a coin we're interested in because of its community and because of its technology. We talked about privacy in terms of the sender, which is ring signatures, the recipient, which is um, the stealth addresses or one-time addresses, the amount, which is the ring CT, CT transactions, and the IP addresses being hidden, which is uh, Covery project. All of these things together, including the other sort of game theoretical differences that we talked about with Bitcoin, make Monero an extremely, extremely intriguing coin. That said, I want to just reiterate, this is not investment advice. You know, in the long run, Monero is certainly fascinating in 2018. Who knows what's going to happen in 2019? Maybe Grin takes the mantle. Maybe Bitcoin implements bulletproof uh, transactions on top. And so this is a process that's going to keep evolving. And we recommend you guys do your own research and decide which coins, you know, remain interesting over time. Yeah. And on that investment piece, Max, you know, every time someone writes an explainer or does a podcast like ours, yeah, everyone says like, I'm not giving investment advice. And what I kind of want to add to that is like, it's not even that we're not giving an investment advice. If you're looking at these coins to make profits, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a completely different conversation. Pretty much everything we're talking about today is Max and my desire to have available to us a tool that allows anonymous spending. That's not to say that I'm not going to use my credit card ever or that I'm that I only want to spend anonymously, but it's like, if I believe I want to have that ability to have privacy and, and anonymity with my spending, then I would like to have a technological tool that can allow that. And it's, it's not as if I can use Monero today to buy something on Amazon or to buy most products from stores. Mostly it's going to be peer-to-peer for now. I want to be able to use this in the future. I believe in it. I'd like to own some Monero just so I can walk the walk and try using it. And and help out. You know, what can I do to contribute to this community? Maybe it's, you know, you and I trying to uh, muddle our way through these white papers and explain it to people. I mean, hopefully that's helpful to someone. But it's all about making this vision 
a reality, which is not a coin that's worth $10,000 each. I mean, great, okay, you made some money, but eventually you've got to start using these things. Eventually these aren't just assets that you sit on. Eventually they're the means of exchanging value and, and the fluid that society runs on. So it's not investment advice. And if you want to buy Monero or you want to get involved in Monero, from us at least, we're, re we're recommending you do it just from an exploratory point of view. Try it out, see what it's like, have some fun with it, and try using this, this really cool technology that's very nascent and really exciting. I guess the next question is, how do we get some? How does someone buy Monero? Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll link to the show notes to give you some guys um, some starting points on how you can find a wallet and and all that sort of thing. And I I think one thing I also want to reiterate is not only is this not investment advice, but you know a lot of people when they hear Monero, they're gonna you know think automatically, oh, this is you know scary dark money. Even if they've already sort of heard our our sort of philosophical reasons why privacy is important. So one thing I think that's really important is that we you know also just normalize Monero and make this clear, hey, this is not just for you know illegal activity. And there's a really cool project I recommend everyone check out called Project Coral Reef, which was launched by Fluffy Pony, the lead Monero maintainer, and a few others. And they basically have helped some major artists like Mariah Carey, Weezer, some, some pretty big names start to accept Monero on their online stores, which I think is a huge step forward in sort of destigmatizing that, hey, this is not just for you know criminals or dark market. This is you know for everyday people and um, you know something everyone should have as a tool in their in their toolkit. Absolutely. I love it. I'm a big Weezer fan, believe it or not. And I uh, have to check if they have any new albums and I will certainly be buying them with Monero. Hell yeah, man. All right. We just, we just, we just made an impact on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy one. Yeah, for sure. Word. Cool, man. Well, um, this has been, I know, a very long show, but I hope you guys got something out of it. Um, if you have feedback for us, either on, uh, you know, points we raised today or on future coins or, uh, topics you'd like to explore, where can they hit us up, Eli? That's CryptoNomads at ProtonMail.com. And maybe on a future show, we'll talk about why ProtonMail. We're, we're always about trying new tech here. <laughs> yes. Well, this has been super fun, Max. Thanks for chatting. Likewise, bro. Um, for everyone else, thank you for listening. Enjoy your evening in Mexico. Likewise, enjoy Vancouver. All right. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.